A listener's note before we begin. The following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Around 3 a.m. on April 19th, Truro Police Sergeant Rick Hickox was at the local hospital, the Colchester East Hants Health Center, which had been on lockdown for three hours because of a shooting in Portapique, about a 30-minute drive away. He was updating his colleagues who were posted at the main doors with new information he had just learned from two RCMP officers he happened to meet. He later wrote in his notes, which were released through a Freedom of Information request, that he was driving to the hospital sometime between 2.15 and 2.45 that morning when he noticed an RCMP vehicle in town. The two Mounties pulled up beside him in an SUV. They were from the detachment in Anaganish, about an hour and 15 minutes northeast of Truro. They had just done a next-of-kin notification, but now they were lost and looking for directions. Tyler Blair told us in episode one that he was notified at around three that morning that his dad, Greg, and his stepmom, Jamie, had been killed in Portapik. And he went to the hospital in Truro to pick up his two little brothers who had survived and escaped. Sergeant Hickox was at the hospital when Tyler Blair arrived. People in Portapik had started calling 911 at around 10 o'clock that night. A peaceful evening was shattered as gunshots rang out in the seaside community. Homes and buildings set ablaze left to burn for hours, the flames stretching over the tree line. The gunman took 13 lives. Disguised as a police officer and driving a vehicle he had made up to look like a real RCMP cruiser, he escaped on a back road before police locked down the area. Officers on the scene didn't know he was gone. They kept looking for him in Portapique. There had been no public notice from the RCMP about what was happening. Nothing but a vague tweet at 11.32 p.m. that said there was a firearms complaint in the area. Shortly after 1 a.m., the RCMP warned the province's other police forces that there was a so-called active shooter situation, and the suspect was named Gabriel Wartman. But there was no mention of any deaths or fires. Call logs from the Truro Police Service show that these nearby forces knew little else. Sergeant Hickox and his colleagues at the hospital had not been called in to help with the search for a suspect in Portapik, even though they were an hour closer to the scene than the Anaganish RCMP. And uh, it just blows my mind why the police departments in Amherst and Truro were not contacted. Have you heard any kind of credible or reasonable explanation for why that would be? No, no, none whatsoever, no. I'm your host, Sarah Ritchie, and this is 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre. Episode 6, Communication Breakdown. Aside from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, there are 10 municipal police forces in towns and cities across Nova Scotia, The RCMP have a provincial contract to provide policing services to everyone else. They work very closely with the Halifax Regional Police in the Capital Region, but there is a distinct line between RCMP and non-RCMP jurisdiction. The Truro Police Service call logs we mentioned at the top of this episode were released to the media through a Freedom of Information request. 
They provide a detailed picture of what the closest municipal police service knew about the shooting spree as it was happening nearby. These call logs show a divide between what the RCMP knew and what they were sharing with other police forces. But here's the thing. This wasn't the first time that happened in this case. Evidence of that jurisdictional divide came up before, years ago, when someone was concerned enough about Gabriel Wartman to warn the police. In the last two episodes, we told you about some of the gunman's past, possible red flags, his violent assault of a 15-year-old boy outside his business in 2001, his obsession with police, his violence against his common-law partner, his collection of weapons. There was one more important warning about his potential for violence, and it came from Truro Police nearly 10 years ago. In May of 2011, someone in Truro was concerned enough about Wartman to report him to the local police. This person's name has never been released, but the informant told Truro Police Corporal Greg Densmore that Wartman said he wanted to, quote, kill a cop. The source said this was because Wartman was angry about how police handled a break-and-enter complaint he made in 2008. And that's not all. The source also said they knew Wartman owned guns, at least one handgun that they had seen, which he kept in the nightstand beside his bed. This person thought Wartman might be transporting the gun between two locations. And they said he had several long rifles at his cottage stored in a compartment behind the chimney. Truro Police Chief Dave McNeil said in an interview on May 29th that Corporal Densmore did what he needed to do with that tip. So the information was taken seriously at that time, and our officer documented it and uh, submitted it in a, in a bulletin to the Criminal Intelligence Service of Nova Scotia, who then would disseminate it to all police agencies in the province. Uh, neither address on the bulletin uh, was in our jurisdiction, so there was no follow-up required by Truro Police Service. We were mean just passed the information along. So the Criminal Intelligence Service of Nova Scotia sent out a warning in the form of an officer safety bulletin to every police force in the province on May 4th, 2011. The person who reported the tip also said that Wartman had been under a lot of stress lately and that he was possibly having some mental health issues. Actually, the source is quoted by Corporal Densmore as saying that he's becoming a little squirrely. Before we dig into what was done about this... I want to remind you of what we have learned about the gunman in previous episodes. In 2010, Wartman learned that his parents had a second child when he was just two years old and gave that child up for adoption. His brother Jeff entered his life in June 2010 at a birthday party Wartman hosted for their father, but it didn't go well. Wartman's uncle said he never warmed up to Jeff. That same month, Wartman had a falling out with his parents, and he was investigated for threatening to kill them. Halifax Regional Police said they didn't have enough information to lay charges or get search warrants in that case. That investigation is referenced in the May 2011 Officer Safety Bulletin. And it says that Halifax Police had learned Wartman may have several long rifles at one of his homes. So back to our original question. What was done about this at the time? It's not an easy question to answer. That bulletin from 2011 mentions Wartman had two addresses. We know they were in Dartmouth, which is in Halifax Regional Police Territory, and in Portapique, which is under the jurisdiction of the RCMP. 
Here's what RCMP spokesperson Corporal Jennifer Clark said about it on May 29th, 2020. The bulletin was authored by Truro Police Service. The individual concerned, the gunman, in the April 18th, 19th incidents uh, resided. His sort of principal residence at the time was in Dartmouth. So that uh, led the investigation of the tip to Halifax Regional Police. They followed up with that. They made us aware that uh, there was some information pertaining to the Portapic residence that the gunman owned at the time. And um, I can't speak exactly about what we did or didn't do with the information. The reason they can't speak about the bulletin is because the RCMP said it was deleted from their records management system. I don't have that information because, like I said, the bulletin has been purged. Um, I can also say about uh, pieces of information like that, like crime bulletins or officer safety bulletins, we get those routinely, um, daily, even ones of a content that is being described about this particular bulletin. I can tell you that it's not out of the ordinary for us to receive something like that. The RCMP has a retention policy on bulletins. We keep them for about two years, um, and this bulletin would be treated the same way. So after two years, the information was purged from our system. But I've talked to current and former RCMP officers who say that doesn't make sense. Bulletins and bolos are common, but a warning that someone wants to kill a cop? They should have looked into it. That's Mike Gregory. He's a retired RCMP officer who worked in Nova Scotia for his entire 25-year career. Right now, he's a councillor for the municipality of Colchester. That's the local government for Colchester County, which includes port pic My dear Lord, but, but this constable in, in Truro Town Police, the information he posted out in the bulletin, he had the information. He could certainly help you out in getting a search warrant. My goodness gracious, it's pathetic. It's going to have to be a rocket scientist to figure that one out. Any police officer that had any kind of experience and knowledge in, uh, in, in criminal activity, think, you know, you had, to, you had to deal with this. Mike told me that when he was policing, a bulletin warning that someone wanted to harm a police officer was not taken lightly. Those bulletins would be on the wall, and sometimes they could be there for two, two and three or four and five years. And you know, Canada-wide warrants for so-and-so or uh, a bulletin safe because of somebody that's a police hater, uh, not living in your community. But if he was living in the community, uh, my goodness gracious, every police officer that came to my detachment would certainly know about this guy and, uh, with the, uh, and the fact that he or she was a police hater. So, yeah, I was shocked when, when, I, when I heard that one. I've talked to current RCMP members who say this is exactly the kind of information you'd want to know as an officer if you ever had to pull someone over or visit their home. That's what Corporal Densmore said, too, in an email he wrote about the bulletin the day it was sent out. He said the source was unproven, but the information had to be fanned out for officer safety. The RCMP said back in May that they'd look into what happened with this bulletin, whether it was investigated and what came of it. They haven't said anything more about it since. But the fact that it was purged from their system, according to officers I've spoken to, means that it may not have been investigated. I spoke with one officer who used to be a records clerk with the RCMP. They're not connected to this case, and we've agreed not to use their name. They said a bulletin like this one could be essentially lost in the system if it was never attached to a file in the first place. Which means it might exist somewhere, but it wouldn't be something an officer could search for. So it's possible that someone made a mistake 
and never created a file or attached the bulletin to a file. And like Corporal Clark said, the records management system is set up to purge information after a certain period of time. But that automatic purge only happens with some information. And if an investigation had been opened and someone had flagged this as a serious threat, then from what I've been told, the bulletin should have been kept for a lot longer. I can say if I was the commander and managing it, there would have been a file open. That definitely would have happened. It wouldn't have been purged. It would have been either investigated and run to the ground that it was not uh, viable, or it would have been uh, resulting in an arrest. Gary Clement is another retired RCMP member. He ended his career as the National Director of the Force's Proceeds of Crime Division in 2007, and he now works as a consultant. I asked him about the process. What should have happened when a bulletin came in warning that someone had guns and wanted to kill a police officer? The first thing we would do is a risk assessment. And on that risk assessment, you assess whether is this individual, does he have the capacity to carry out this threat? And obviously, some of the things that you've mentioned, you do their background, uh, what, what's their criminal past, uh, have we had complaints in the past? I mean, if you were looked at all the red flags and actually had done that, it begs that a very uh, in-depth investigation should have been carried out. Uh, because obviously this individual uh, had the wherewithal. Obviously, I mean, without knowing all, all the facts, uh, definitely an individual that's unbalanced in, in a lot of ways. And the fact that he had uh, this arsenal of weapons uh, should have immediately created a, uh, an investigation to deal with it. And, and I think that's, that's where a lot of questions, I think, are coming in. I mean, there's a lot of answers that the RCMP is going to have to atone for. I mean, just to say that they overlooked it uh, is unacceptable. Um, I don't understand how it could be overlooked. We don't know for sure whether the RCMP investigated this complaint in 2011. The bulletin was not in their system this spring, and it's believed it was purged after two years. So that would be May of 2013. Brenda Forbes, whose story we told you in the last episode, said that it was sometime that same summer that she reported to RCMP that Wortman had illegal weapons at his cottage in Portapique and that he had been abusing his common-law partner. We don't know if the RCMP officers she spoke with at the time had access to that bulletin from 2011, but if they did, they would have seen that this was the third time police had been told that Wortman had weapons at his cottage— First, in 2010, when he threatened to kill his parents. Then, in 2011, when someone felt the need to warn the police about him. And then Brenda, two years later. And that's something that still haunts her. It's, it's rough. It is. Um, I just want this to be fixed. I want... I want if somebody reports... A crime, like somebody being assaulted or somebody having illegal weapons or that it should be acted on like yesterday. Like, don't put it off. It has to be investigated at that moment. Feminist activist Linda McDonald said when someone reports intimate partner violence, it's a crucial opportunity, a chance to intervene and prevent further violence down the line. What Brenda said she reported to the police 
that Wortman's partner was afraid of him, that he had weapons, and that he had been seen strangling her is a significant warning sign of future violence, according to Linda. Strangulation is a huge red flag. Huge. The serial strangulation shows that incidence of femicide goes up about 700%. So as soon as the police heard that he strangled, you know, strangled uh, his partner, not to death, but strangled her, that should have been like the warning sign of ever, that they should never have not gone to the home or not investigated it further, let alone the fact that he had illegal guns. The, the police were told that they, he had illegal guns by not only Brenda, but by Brenda's husband. So it was a male and female voice as well. And Linda said that matters. She works closely with another feminist activist named Jean Sarson. They advocate for women who are trying to escape situations with violent men. Over the course of almost three decades of doing that work together, they say it happens often that women who report violence are not believed or taken seriously. So women often say, well, I knew if I said anything, nobody was going to pay attention. Nobody was believing me. Nobody seemed to care one way or the other. Jean said the fact that Brenda tried to tell the police about this and nothing was done shows there are major flaws with investigation strategies. The Halifax Regional Police, when they investigated him, they said that they couldn't get a warrant. Maybe the RCMP have to look at or the justice system has to look at if you have this kind of information that this man is strangling his partner, that there's a persistent serial victimizations going on, that society is seeing it, her neighbors are seeing it, that maybe when the RCMP went to his house, maybe they should have had enough grounds to have a warrant to really investigate and maybe ask her Maybe he used the gun against her. We don't know. Police have said Wartman did not have a firearms license. And that's something that retired RCMP members Mike Gregory and Gary Clement said should have bolstered the case for getting a search warrant for his properties. The 2011 Officer Safety Bulletin we've been discussing only came to light after the shooting spree was over. An officer with the Amherst Police Department, that's another municipal force that's about an hour away from Port-a-Pic, said that he recognized Gabriel Wartman's name. Dwayne Pike is chief of the Amherst Police. It was after everything had concluded that the member, um, he wasn't on duty at the time, but my, my understanding is he remembered the name and said, I think we had some information on that person at one point. And it checked through his old email and found a bulletin we're getting a relation to this person and forwarded to the supervisor who was working night shift uh, that night. The supervisor had forwarded to some colleagues of his in the RCMP. The RCMP have said that information wouldn't have made a difference during the shooting spree. Here's Chief Superintendent Chris Leather at a June 4th press conference. Following April 18 and 19, a member from another police service within Nova Scotia brought forward a historical police bulletin that dates back to May 2011. It was authored by another police service and distributed by the Criminal Intelligence Service of Nova Scotia in 2011. While a bulletin existed from 2011, it likely would not have changed the response of April 18 and 19. It was not searchable or available to our responding officers on the 18th and 19th. 
According to Chief Superintendent Leather, the bulletin likely would not have changed the RCMP's response. But retired RCMP member Gary Clement said he's at a loss to say why more wasn't done years ago. What it tells me is with all those threats that did come out, nothing was ever done. Because if it had been done, they would have known who the individual was. And that, to me, doesn't bode well for uh, reaction of the RCMP and how they manage this. Since the shooting spree happened, there have been questions about how well the RCMP work with other small police forces and why they didn't put out an immediate, wide-ranging call for help to every police force in the province on the night of April 18th. On June 4th, Superintendent Campbell addressed that too. Media reports have raised questions regarding the level of communications between the RCMP and other Nova Scotia police agencies, as well as an apparent lack of requests from the RCMP to other Nova Scotia police agencies for assistance on April 18th and the 19th. There is detailed information that refutes these claims. I can confirm that the RCMP was in contact with other Nova Scotia police agencies several times throughout the incident, and that information was communicated to all Nova Scotia police agencies as it became known. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The RCMP have not released that detailed information they say refutes the claim that other police forces didn't know about what was happening. But as we mentioned earlier, we do have detailed information from the Truro Police Service call logs that can help us to understand what they knew and when. Let's back up for now to midnight on April 19th, two hours after gunfire began in Portapique. According to the call logs, that is when Truro police were given details about the shooting. Except it didn't come from the RCMP. A man was brought to the Colchester Hospital with a gunshot wound. You may remember that this man was a key witness for the RCMP. In episode one, we told you that this witness told the first two officers in Portapic that he had been shot by a neighbor named Gabe who seemed to be setting houses on fire and who drove away in what looked like a real police car. He also told police that part of the reason he escaped alive was because he saw a laser sight on the handgun that was pointed at him from inside that real-looking police car in the darkness. Until that moment, he thought the person inside the vehicle was an actual RCMP officer called to the scene because of the fires that were burning at several different properties and then the person shot him. When he got to the hospital, someone in the emergency department called Truro police to alert them. The caller said they were confused about the protocols and whether police needed to be at the hospital in a lockdown situation. The call logs show that the dispatcher said they didn't know anything about a shooting nearby and connected the caller from the hospital to Sergeant Rick Hickox at 12.01 a.m. Sergeant Hickox said he had heard something was going on, but it's not clear what he knew or how he heard about it. Regardless, he agreed to send an officer over to the hospital's main doors. 
According to his notes, Sergeant Hickox then called the RCMP for more information. He asked the dispatcher if he could speak to the risk manager. In his notes, he wrote that she immediately began laughing at him and that instead he spoke with a dispatch supervisor and learned what he called limited information. And then he called in another Truro officer for help because one of his officers would be at the hospital for some time. The call logs show that at around the time the BOLO, or Be On The Lookout notice, went out at about 1 a.m., the RCMP called Truro Police with more information. The RCMP officer said Gabriel Wartman may be driving another vehicle and said that it had been, quote, described as a former police car with even like, like a decal on, end quote. They said there were a number of cars burned at the scene and the RCMP didn't know if this vehicle with the possible decal was one of them. RCMP didn't know their suspect had left Portapique hours earlier and that he was hiding out in DeBert. And Truro police didn't know to be looking out for a vehicle that a witness had said looked just like an RCMP cruiser. So when Sergeant Hickox happened upon two lost RCMP officers in town, between 2.15 and 2.45 a.m., he didn't hesitate to pull over and talk to them. The call logs show that 2 a.m. was the last communication between Truro police and the RCMP until a series of calls at around 4 a.m. Those communications made Truro police aware of other vehicles the gunman had registered in his name. Both of them, police would later learn, were burned at the scene. In his notes, Sergeant Hickox wrote that when his shift ended at 6 a.m., there was, quote, very little information regarding the severity of the situation, end quote. Superintendent Campbell insisted on June 4th that other police agencies were called upon to help. Other Nova Scotia police agencies were asked to assist the RCMP in a variety of ways. In fact, they offered assistance as well. This included agreements by other Nova Scotia police agencies to cover calls for service in RCMP jurisdictions while our officers were occupied in the response, providing investigative assistance as well with priority witness interviews while the situation was unfolding, evacuating potential victims from residents known to the gunman, as well as providing lockdown security to an area hospital where some of the injured victims were being treated. Truro Police Chief Dave McNeil emailed the RCMP's Chief Superintendent Chris Leather directly just before 9 a.m. on April 19th to offer his help. By 10 a.m., he was told that the RCMP may have the suspect pinned down. But Gabriel Wartman was not pinned down. At 10.37 a.m., the RCMP asked Truro Police to lock down the roads in and out of town. And by that time, the gunman had already come and gone. Police were steps behind him once again. Meanwhile, 105 kilometers from Portapique in Amherst, municipal police were asked to cover calls in RCMP jurisdiction that weekend while the search was underway. We know Halifax Regional Police were sent to Wartman's address in Dartmouth overnight to confirm that one of the former police vehicles was there. And Nova Scotia RCMP did call in help from their colleagues in Moncton, New Brunswick, who were about 155 kilometers away. They also eventually asked for support from the Fredericton Police Force, a municipal force more than 330 kilometers from Portapique. Superintendent Campbell said on April 24th that they also asked for air support. 
as a result of the information that they were receiving. While the situation was unfolding, the critical incident program was engaged and was staging to take control of the critical incident. During this point, perimeters were established, specialized units responded, which included police dog services, emergency response team members, and request for air support helicopter. But that request for a helicopter didn't go very far. I want to introduce you to my colleague, Brian Hill, who's been helping us with this investigation. He and I wrote a story about this back in October. Hey, Brian. Hey, Sarah. So what happened with that request for a helicopter? Well, we don't really know. The RCMP told us their only helicopter in the Atlantic provinces was out for routine maintenance the weekend of the shooting, so it wasn't available to help with the manhunt. It's not clear if there was any backup plan in place either in the event the helicopter was needed. This is what the RCMP told us in an email on September 14th when we asked about the helicopter. Quote, RCMP air service assets undergo routine maintenance as per Transport Canada regulations and standards, which was ongoing at the time of the incident. In the event that a need arises, local RCMP can seek support from other divisions or provinces or other agencies to assist based on the specific needs of the situation at hand, end quote. So do we know if the RCMP asked for help from other divisions or other agencies that night? We don't know who they asked for help or when, but we asked these questions. We also asked the RCMP for details about their maintenance policies for aircraft. When was maintenance for the Atlantic-based helicopter scheduled? And if they had any backup plan in place to replace the helicopter while it was out for service? The RCMP didn't really answer any of these questions. They told us to file an access to information request if we wanted more details about the maintenance records. We do know there was a helicopter involved in the search that weekend. It came from the Nova Scotia Department of Lands and Forestry. Yeah, but we don't know when it was called in or when it was deployed. On April 21st, Nova Scotia Premier Stephen McNeil said that the province got the request later in the morning on April 19th, but he didn't give a specific time. We also don't know what capabilities this helicopter had and whether it was equipped to search at night. We asked the RCMP about that too. And instead of answering our questions, they told us to ask the Nova Scotia Department of Lands and Forestry for any specific details we wanted about the helicopter and the date and time it was deployed to help in the manhunt. So we asked Lands and Forestry these questions, and a spokesperson for the department told us we should call the RCMP if we had any questions about the investigation. So basically, they were giving us the runaround. Okay, there are two Air Force bases in Nova Scotia. Shearwater is in the Halifax area, and then Greenwood is just across the Bay of Fundy from Port-a-Pic. I know both of them have helicopters with search capabilities. Did the RCMP ask the military for help? No, they didn't. The Department of National Defense told us the RCMP didn't reach out for help until after the shooting spree was over, and that that was only for supplies and help from mental health care professionals. We talked to Christian Loprecht about this. He's a policing expert at Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario. He told us there should be a clear policy in place to make sure equipment owned by other government agencies is available to police forces during an emergency like the killing spree in Nova Scotia. He also thinks the RCMP should have called the military to help find the gunman in April when he was still on the loose. 
So this seems like a classic optimization problem, not just among different levels of government, but among different uh, agencies across different governments and within the same government in terms of this is the type of asset we need and how do we get that to that deployment in a timely and effective fashion. I think it's, um, it's disheartening that we're not, we haven't figured out how to optimize across departments and across governments. And that's, I think, the broader lesson to take away that when we do need the assets, we do seem to be able to get them. But it takes too long for an emergency situation, it seems, to figure out to actually get it done. Christian also said the RCMP would have needed to ask the military for help because the armed forces doesn't have a mandate to provide civilian law enforcement services in Canada, meaning they couldn't just show up and help even if they'd wanted to. So if the RCMP wanted or needed help from the military that weekend, could they have gotten it? Yeah, there was a report into a previous shooting that recommended it. You actually talked about this in episode three, the shooting spree in Moncton, New Brunswick. Justin Burke went on a shooting spree, then evaded police for nearly 30 hours in June 2014. He shot five RCMP officers, killing three of them. An independent review into the shootings determined that a helicopter was a key feature of the RCMP's search for the gunman and its ability to keep other officers safe during the manhunt. The report said that the risks officers were exposed to when looking for Burke were, quote, greatly reduced because of aerial surveillance and that specially equipped aircraft were the most effective means of accomplishing this. The report also said that the RCMP should consider asking the Canadian Armed Forces for help if a similar incident were to occur in the future and that provisions exist for the military to assist in operations where specialized or unique capabilities are required. Right. And we know the military helped the RCMP with a manhunt in Manitoba more recently. In July of 2019, three people were found dead on a remote stretch of highway in northern British Columbia. The suspects, 18-year-old Briar Schmigelski and 19-year-old Cam McLeod, were on the run for 23 days. Police eventually found their bodies in the remote northern Manitoba forest. The Canadian Armed Forces did send in two aircraft with infrared search capabilities on July 27th. That was a day after the RCMP asked for help. Royal Military College security expert Christian Loprecht said better policies are needed. And we know from the Manitoba situation last year, it was a very long feedback loop from the time the RCMP thought about requesting those assets till it requested those assets. And once it got to the Canadian Armed Forces, they actioned it very expeditiously. But there were several days of uh, of a loop here. And so the question is, what did we learn from Manitoba, if anything? The Manitoba president suggests that uh, that that feedback loop is uh, maybe longer, more onerous, more bureaucratic uh, than is in the public interest um, in cases of immediate uh, threats, for instance, to public safety. And so whether it's in Manitoba or I think this situation then reinforces, um, there appears to be opportunity both at the federal level and at the contract provincial level for the RCMP to review its ability to request those resources and bring them out in a timely manner. 
We heard Superintendent Campbell earlier say that the RCMP asked for air support during its initial response in Portapique, but during that press conference, it was never made clear that the force's own helicopter wasn't available. So Brian, how did you learn about that in the first place? We first learned about it in documents that were submitted as part of a proposed class action lawsuit filed by the victims' families against the RCMP in the province of Nova Scotia. The lawsuit was filed in June and then amended to include new allegations in September. The lawsuit says the RCMP didn't use a helicopter capable of searching at night and in wooded areas in Portapique during the day. It also said that if a helicopter like this was used, which isn't clear at this point because the RCMP haven't answered any questions about this, it wasn't used in a timely or appropriate manner. We asked police for their response to the lawsuit And that's when they sent us an email saying the helicopter was out for routine maintenance on the weekend of the killing spree and therefore unavailable. This was the first time we learned this detail. That lawsuit also alleges that the RCMP failed to deploy an emergency response team in an appropriate and timely manner, and that when it was deployed, it was not used in a way likely to contain and locate the gunman. When we asked about that claim, the RCMP said they couldn't tell us when the emergency response team was deployed. The proposed class action lawsuit has not been certified by the court yet, and neither the RCMP nor the province has filed a defense. It's impossible to know if anything that weekend would have changed if the police had called in a military search helicopter or if their own helicopter had been available. But we do know that officers who were in Portapique that night have said they were struggling to understand what was going on in the darkness as fires burned. We know that police believe the gunman drove away on a back road 45 minutes after the first 911 calls were made, and that there were witnesses and survivors hiding in the woods overnight who had crucial information about what was going on. And Christian Loprecht said in a situation like this one, there has to be an all-hands-on-deck response. He said that was one of the key findings after the mass shooting at Columbine High School in Colorado in 1999. If there ever is a tier one call in policing, it's an active shooter situation. It is like it is the single top call that a police force can receive. We have an active shooter. So the fact that the system did not respond or is what not able to respond with all hands on deck after everything that we've learned since Columbine about the importance of an expeditious response um, that, to contain that threat, I think is ultimately a failure of providing the level of service that uh, Canadians, regardless of where they live in the country, Um, are entitled to in terms of uh, public safety and security. Police sources have told us that the RCMP thought the gunman was likely hiding in Portapique overnight or that he was dead. And that impacted how they responded on the scene. It's possible that assumption also had an impact on their decision not to call on the military for help. Retired RCMP member Gary Clement said police leadership should never have drawn that conclusion. It was totally assessed improperly right at the outset. The information, or at least what we've been told, is they believe the individual had committed suicide. Well, you never, ever uh, take that position. You always, especially with an active shooter, you always maintain a stance that there's an active shooter until it's been 100% cleared. And obviously... 
the case was this was never cleared. So I, I think that created a lot of confusion. I don't know uh, and can't comment on what the status of the ability to all these members from other detachments to communicate. But what we must recognize when you call police officers in from outside areas, they're not going to be as familiar with the area that they're operating in. And that that also makes it difficult and, and heightens the level of risk. So that's where uh, strong leadership, uh, having a, a commander on scene that it is seen as a strong leader is absolutely essential. And he said that not calling on other police forces or the military was not good enough. This is, again, it goes back to, I guess, sort of that RCMP mentality that, you know, we're we're bigger than everybody. We can manage everything. Um, having, as I said, uh, experienced uh, small town policing where you actually partnerships and relying on other police agencies is an, an absolute must. And everybody does work together. Um, I think it's a it's it's a lesson. It's an unfortunate lesson for the RCMP. They got to realize that in a contract environment, they need to work with their policing partners. There are hard lessons to be learned about how RCMP handled things that weekend, but equally important are the questions about how all these red flags about Wartman were handled over the course of more than a decade. That has several of the experts we've talked to questioning whether this tragedy could have been prevented. Feminist activist Jean Sarson said looking at the big picture of what happened after the fact is crucial. You'd have to put that whole context in place to see what led from 2011 to 2013 to uh, 2020. The part that society uh, could have intervened, the part that the RCMP could have intervened and taking seriously um, the information that was being delivered to them. It's not only experts who are concerned. The families of those lost in Portapique feel haunted by the red flags that don't seem to have been taken seriously. John Farrington's parents, Don and Frank Galenchen, were killed in Portapique on April 18th. You met him in our first episodes. John said he keeps thinking about all the sacrifices his mom made to live out her retirement dream with his dad and how it was stolen in an instant. For her to, to, to work so hard, to be away from her husband, to you know not want to lose her pension, to make sure that everybody's taken care of, for this guy to take it away, it's just, I don't, I don't understand why. And I know we're never gonna get uh, complete answers on why, but you know, I know there's been a lot of stuff in the, past regarding this gentleman that, you know, I, why weren't flags raised? It angers me. It angers my brother. It angers the whole family because my mom knows that I work with mental health patients. I work with, you know, murderers waiting to go to, you know, prison. I, my brother works with boss prevention, arresting people that carry knives and, you know, guns. And so my mom would think nothing twice of opening the door. The same with my dad. Their first thought would be there's a police officer, there's a vehicle, they have, you know, the uniform. What's wrong with my sons? It would be their first thought. And that door would be open with, you know, without hesitation. John is among the family members who are now suing the RCMP and the province in the lawsuit that Brian mentioned. 
The lawsuit alleges that the RCMP failed to request the help of Truro police and failed to properly investigate and secure the perimeter of the crime scene at Portapique. Sandra McCullough, a lawyer representing the families, says there's a great deal of mistrust. There's certainly reason to believe that we're not getting clear information, we're not getting transparent information, we're not getting timely information from the RCMP about what happened in April. And and obviously that that is a great cause for concern if 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 we're not getting if we're not getting honest answers about some things, what all are we not getting honest answers about? And remember, the RCMP haven't agreed to do an interview with us for this podcast. And they've said they won't be answering questions about the investigation at this time. All it does is is aggravate concerns um, and and validate concerns that that we're not we're not getting an accurate story about what happened. And it's it's giving I I would suggest it's giving not just the families, but all Nova Scotians reason to distrust what actually happened on those those tragic days in April. Retired RCMP member Gary Clement said the many lingering questions about what happened and why are frustrating for members of the RCMP as well. I'm a proud ex-member of the RCMP and I, uh, it's disappointing when I see these type of things and, and, you know, I, I, I'm looking at it and really in my mind, there's a number of things that I'm seeing right now that, you know, the RCMP, I I think is, is struggling Um, and that's not doesn't build a lot of confidence uh, across, you know, for the, the citizens of Canada or even for the membership. I think there's a lot of frustration amongst the membership. Um, I have no doubt that the members that responded did what they thought was right. But you get a group of members, it's like anything. Um, they're only as good as the leadership. And in a case like that, you really need a strong leader because it is chaotic. And it's something that most members will never, and thank God they won't, but they'll never see in their career. But when it does happen, that's when it's absolute 100% necessary that you have a strong leader steps up and takes control. And that did not happen. John Farrington said he feels for the first responders who showed up to help that night. But after what he and his family have been through, he has bigger questions about the RCMP's ability to handle a situation like this. I get, you know, there's pros and cons and I get that, you know, they weren't kind of prepared for this given the situation and given the area, you know, scenario where you should be able to sleep with your doors unlocked. The most you should have to worry about is wildlife kind of thing. But nonetheless, you're a police force. You should be prepared for anything at any time kind of thing. Right. So, you know, I just, I don't know why that wasn't kind of, you know, in motion, like an active shooter kind of situation, you know, instead of having to wait for first responders to get there and then be like, okay, what's the game plan kind of thing. It's a daily struggle for John to understand how so many warning signs went unchecked. Everything from the police uniforms and the decals to Wartman's stash of weapons. At the end of the day, he wants what the other families want. Answers accountability. And many of them have told us the pain of living through this isn't getting easier with time. You just learn to live kind of differently, you know? And unfortunately, it's living with, with hurt and with, with anger and question. 
I'm not one to, to, to bash law enforcement, you know, like I said, pros and cons of the situation. I hope they learn something going forward, but whether they weren't prepared or not, family deserves to know more than what they are, they are being told. There are still so many questions that families and others are asking, and there is more to this story. Court documents now show that the gunman had more than $700,000 in cash at his property, and that's led to questions about why and how that's possible. We've also learned more about where he got some of his weapons. For me, trying to understand the relationship between Gabriel and Tom, I think is important. Do you agree that that's an important relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Gabriel wouldn't have been Gabriel without Tom. Hmm. There's no way it stands but. That's next time on 13 Hours. Thank you so much for joining us this week. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre is written and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Kress. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Neil Benedict. Additional reporting for this episode by Global News reporters Brian Hill, Elizabeth McSheffrey, and Alexander Kwan. Special thanks to Don Cuthbertson, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos. All of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Kress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca slash 13 hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13 hours podcast. If you have a question about this episode and series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13 hours at curiouscast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes too. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. On showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copycat on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner. All new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.